Hey, everybody. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Yo. Yo. Today on the show, we're going to talk about a Netflix documentary that's called Don't Pick Up the Phone. I think it's called something else as well. Yeah, I'm not sure. In other places. I have an update of something. Well, it's not an update, but it's related to the Dennis Rader. um, Oh, cool. So for those of you who follow our true crime episodes, Mm -hmm. uh, we we're in the midst of and towards the end of our series on Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. And in fact, this article came out, it was kind of timely because I have one more episode that I'll be doing hopefully in the near future that will wrap up the series and more related to Raider's family members, specifically his daughter. And so, you know, their stories and whatnot. So, you know, there was recently a man by the name of uh, Brian Koberger who was arrested for killing some co-eds in Idaho. And what we know is that he was actually studying under Catherine Ramsland. Oh, wow. So Catherine Ramsland is the book that I'm using for a lot of the information on Dennis Rader because she spent years studying him and interviewing him. And what we are finding out about Koberger, he was a, might be Koberger, I'm not sure. He was a graduate student at Washington State University Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology at the time of the killings. And he studied criminology during his time at DeSales University in in Pennsylvania. And he studied under Catherine Ramsland, a forensic psychologist who wrote the book. Um, and so he he's now, they're saying that his whole thing was very motivated by Dennis Rader and the way that he stalked and sort of did his stuff. And then there was a reaction from Carrie Rawson, who is Rader's daughter. So Carrie Rawson, they interviewed her and they said, you know, it's, she said, it's so hard to be the kid of this guy and live with this. She said, choking back in tears, you know, and then see somebody else go do this and wonder did your dad influence this? Did your dad talk to him? Was he studying my father outside of academics? Am I ever going to get answers to that? I don't know. So, so far, Ramsland hasn't made any discussion uh, publicly. Um, She's like, I can't make any media statements about him at this time. But I just thought that was like really relevant to what we've been talking about on this show. And the fact that Ramsland's the book that I'm using, but also that Carrie Rawson, she continues to be traumatized by these things that her father did for so many years. And now we have this essentially this admittingly being a copycat to a certain extent. So it it really just sick and sad and just wanted to kind of bring that, share that sick sadness with us. Yeah, no, very topical. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. I, I just wanted to quickly mention a different documentary that I watched where and whereas it's not true crime, it's kind of like relational crimes, I guess I should say. I watched the Netflix series about Harry and Meghan. I've been watching it too. I thought it yeah. was... So for you, those of you who don't know, Harry and Meghan, meaning the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, and kind of their leaving, basically, leaving England and leaving their jobs with the royal family, basically. And it's, you know, what five or six episodes and and it's definitely much more of a social and cultural documentary Mm -hmm. than anything else but although the ending i felt was pretty cringy i liked uh, i i'm enjoying it yeah i haven't watched the last episode but i have very much been enjoying it and very much been enjoying their experience Mm -hmm. um and uh you know i know everyone has their different beliefs and whatever but i do find them to be incredibly 
believable and it just adds up. Makes sense to me. Yeah, it's their perspective. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's honestly just watching an actress that I really enjoyed on a Mm -hmm. show I used to watch all the time, that show Suits. And I enjoyed her on that. And then all of a sudden she was thrust into this notoriety. And I've always liked watching Harry and I've, I've, I was a huge fan of Princess Diana and her death. Like I remember where I was Me too. when I heard about it and I remember what I felt. And then I also, you know, had, had lived in London for six months um, prior to that. And I don't know, there was a connection back in the day with that. I'm not as connected or, and I didn't know what had happened and I didn't know any of the current stories. So for me, I was actually kind of learning what happened as well, mm-hmm. like from their perspective. Sure. So it was an interesting watch, but yeah. Anyway, on to our main topic. Don't pick up the phone. Twenty twenty two. It follows the investigation into a hoax caller who convinced managers to strip search employees at fast food businesses across the United States. I do remember when this was happening. Same. And how unbelievable it was at the time. Mm-hmm. And if you hear about a manager at a fast food restaurant, let's say McDonald's, but the this documentary shows you it was like pizza places, taco places, mm-hmm. McDonald's. Like he, this caller uh, did not discriminate on where he called, but he did make it so that they were small town fast food establishments for for the profile he was looking for in someone to manipulate. But you know. You listen to the news and you hear about this happening and you hear about these people being uh, violated, having their clothes taken, being made to jump up and down, all these things when you watch this documentary. But I remember hearing about the story in the news and it was like, I think it's a very natural reaction to hear like, really? You did that because of a phone call? Right. Like, you're obviously a jerk, right? Like, as a as a person out in the world, you hear, yeah, I there was a caller and I did what they told me to do and I ended up, you know, making this underage female employee take off her clothes and jump up and down and do whatever else they do. And I believe it's a very human reaction to think it's a bunch of hooey. But psychologically, <laughs> we know that's not the case. Did you like this documentary in general? It was okay. The documentary was yeah. okay. I was more interested in the story and the psychology of this, like you're talking about. And uh, I know that they did connect it to the Stanley Milgram experiment. For, and for people who may not know what that is, is it, um, you know, he did this in the 1960s. He was a psychologist and he conducted a series of studies on the concepts of obedience and authority. And his experiments involved instructing the study participants um, to deliver increasingly high voltage shocks to someone in another room who would scream and eventually go silent as the shocks became stronger. And, and the way that Milgram set up the study is the person in the other room was actually not attached to anything. They were just responding. They were actors, right? And what he found was um, this obedience to authority that the person would continue despite the pain that they were hearing on the other end, because authority was like, no, this is necessary and was very convincing as to why this was advantageous for one reason or the other, that no matter who this person was, almost in every single situation, in every simulation, the the individual would increase those shocks. And so one thing that I wonder, Shannon, is, you know, that was the 1960s. And then what happened with this guy, 
um, with the hoax was like 90s, early 2000s. Uh, because it stopped in 2004 after his arrest, even though we'll get into that, is we're at a very different place in society now as far as, um, I think, as time evolves, people people rely less and less um, on authority. You know, there's a lot more people going, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to question what my doctor says. I'm going to question what my politicians say. I'm going to question if law enforcement is really on my side. And I just wonder, I don't know, because the psychology of it still is there, is would we still have the same outcome? And, you know, the psychologist in me goes, okay, well, what are the contextual pieces here? Maybe it would depend on the education of the person or the geographical location, maybe yeah. the demographic. I don't know, but so, sort of interesting to entertain or think about. Yeah, I think a couple of things that they point out are that, you know, he was profiling, meaning he always called small town yeah. fast food restaurants. And the assumption was, is that he knew that there would be a lot of young people working there. And then in a small town, not a lot of jobs. So maybe an older person as a manager. Mm -hmm. And so there would be that discrepancy and that authority part. They also made it sound like he practiced a lot and got really good at it. So, you know, he may, might call a hundred places and if he was successful with three so what I think they didn't represent a lot in this series is that I have a feeling he called a lot, a lot of places that didn't do what he wanted them to do. Yeah, I bet. So there was a per there's a percentage of like, what is the psychology around someone who did end up following through with it? And I imagine there's a psychological makeup. They didn't go too far into that, but it's like a vulnerability. And what we know is it's like there's a vulnerability in their life. Maybe the managers that are perpetrating these crimes with instructions from this guy, you know, there's a vulnerability going on in their life. They've had recent losses. They've had certain things, you know, they have their own issues with authority. They have their own, you know, there's a psychological makeup that he was just like drunk dialing, you know, he wasn't drunk. I'm just making a joke, but mm -hmm. like he was just uh, playing the lottery to yeah. call and call and call and then try. And then winning sometimes. Whether or not it would happen today, yeah, I think it could happen today. It would have to take a different form because, of course, mm -hmm. we can trace calls very easily sure. now. He, this guy was using pay phones and calling cards before mm -hmm. they tracked calling cards. And that was the only reason why they ended up finding him at one point is because they could finally track calling cards. So, like, now that, you know, you just wouldn't be able to do that as easily. Or if you were super, super, super tech savvy, then you could do it very easily. Right. But... Yeah, he was very strategic, and um, you and I also had a small discussion before we started today talking about how his anonymity is is really what allowed him to continue because someone like, you know, a pathological narcissist would need that notoriety, and so he was able to get away with quite a bit, and he was very strategic, so he would... He would pick places. One of the reasons I think he also picked places like fast foods is he could see whether cops showed up. He could be far enough away. You know, if this was in an office building on the 24th, fourth floor, he wouldn't have as much control. He could see right through the windows. He could yeah, see visibility. if the restaurant was still functioning. He could see if someone came out or someone was, police were coming in and then he could, you know, end his, his thing and take off. We also find out that through 
this, that he was, I think, works for the Department of Corrections. So, you know, there was a level of sophistication in how he was able to get people to abide to his requests. And and he was very convincing in the guilt of these young folks who were essentially, it, it was intimate terrorism in the sense that they were completely humiliated and some of them were even asked to you know, commit sexual acts. The first scenario of the young woman, I think she was like 19 where she's accused of stealing and they, there's a trigger warning in the sense that they show enough. They they don't get explicit. You don't see nudity or anything, but they show enough that you absolutely know what's going on because there's footage and the scene where the manager's fiance comes in and she, the young girl ends up having to, perform fellatio and all this stuff it's just your stomach is turning believing that it would be that someone would allow it to go that far especially that guy it's like he had to read like wow this woman is literally has my junk in her mouth like this is obviously not a police thing anymore what officer would right and it took him a minute before he actually got up and said i'm not i'm not participating in this yeah there's this moment of realization when you come out of this i don't know it's not a fugue in a psychological perspective but this like dream of being manipulated yeah and i liken it to that's why i say like the people that were the patsies or the people he was getting to do the crime for him Mm -hmm. basically the managers there's a psychology to that too again they don't go too much into that in the documentary but when there's a moment in your life when you you can allow yourself to do things that are unrecognizable to you as a person outside of that situation. And I know like people can do that when they're in very vulnerable states, when they've had very narcissistic parents that maybe treated them that way. When Absolutely. They, when they've been abused before, you know, when they've been abused and so now they're perpetrating abuse on someone else and you're entering this like trauma state and then enacting these things. Again, don't know anything about the people or, mm-hmm. or if that's the, I'm just throwing out some theories. Mm-hmm. But it's also, I kind of think that the guy who was doing this, the person calling, the, the, the person who was enacting all of this or controlling all of it, you do definitely, this isn't revolutionary, but you get the sense that he's enacting something that probably happened to him. Mm-hmm. So if we had any more information about him which we don't, Mm -hmm. it's so clear because it's over and over and over. And he did this hundreds of times. So Mm -hmm. it's like enacting the same trauma over and over and over again. We see that in TV shows. We see it in horror movies, you know, where the killer is like, I mean, this guy didn't kill anybody, but this, the killer is enacting his own trauma and it just feels like that because it's just like a rewind button he does like a similar thing every single time every single time hundreds of times right and not necessarily to be known for it Mm -mm. just to have that fantasy that he can he's not even watching it he's just hearing it he's living it and according to these articles on him is this was this guy he was married he had five children to think of the things we don't know about people, yeah. even in situations that appear like they're in this very healthy-ish. So many of them. And here is this man's dark secret. Yeah. His fantasy that he had to, and I absolutely believe that's what it was. It wasn't anything, I think it would almost be like minimizing it to 
think it was what's the word I'm looking for when sadism uh, uh, no um, control uh, what is it called when someone gets off by watching others um, oh, voyeur vo- yeah it, voyeurism would be significantly minimizing what I think this was for him I absolutely believe that there must that must be trauma induced yeah it felt that way and and there's a couple of things that allowed me to feel as if it was also a a sadistic control, like someone had sadistically controlled him in a very shaming way and repeatedly. And then that was reinforced by caregivers most likely Mm -hmm. because part of this was the pace that he would go at. These calls were upwards of 90 minutes long. I mean, that is obsessive, compulsive. Yeah, he would very slowly work them into this. Like he started with, you know, check their bag check their shoes, you know, working them all the way up to these other horrible acts. Now, the documentary, of course, concentrates on the fact that people were naked and doing jumping jacks and performing sexual acts yeah. and all of this at, at his behest, but the, he would take 90 minutes to yeah, work them just into to get that. there. And yeah. that was part of that. And then there'd be like another four hours, like some of these women, yeah. were, and there was a couple men too, in there for like four or five hours. Exactly. So the pace of it tells me a lot as well that, it's a, it was a date to him. Like he was, he, he, he was depending on that day and how long he waited to get someone that would go along with it. Because he, like I said, I think they made multiple phone calls. He made lots of calls and some days he probably didn't even get a call to work. So it's like, if he'd gone three days without a call working and then he's got someone and he knows he's got them, he's going to spend four hours with them, you know? So mm-hmm. it was just really interesting that use of the Patsy to control others and, I've actually sat with people who have similar traumas. And so that's why it kind of rang in my brain the whole time I was watching it, where their trauma is that when they were younger, they were controlled by someone older to do things to someone else. And so that trauma was playing out in front of me. And that's why it just kind of hit me in the face because I've heard that from actual people before. And so it just seemed so clear to me, even though that could be a complete projection on my part. But And and then yeah. the people that ended up, you know, the, the managers, so moving along in, in, in the story, there's, there's these managers or people that ended up getting uh, either acquitted or convicted of the crimes of participating in this, even mm-hmm. though they were the people that were being told to do whatever the phone, because in an obvious kind of, law way they weren't being held physically there they weren't being tortured they weren't being told to do anything they weren't being restrained to make anybody do anything they weren't they were doing it quote unquote of their own volition yeah but what we know about psychological control is i'm sure many of them didn't feel as if it was under their control yeah and but also those people may have a piece to their psychology around Authority. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And respecting authority. I think that goes back to like what you're kind of saying about right. now. Like, do we, do well, we respect authority now? <laughs> and interesting that like you had mentioned that this was, uh, you know, theoretically a trauma related offense and he happened to go into an industry where he was the authority. Right. So he's, you know, 
just yeah, all I mean, it makes comes sense. full circle. And and they and they do the very and and he's got all of the sort of tropes we see in a lot of true crime. Wanted to be a cop and couldn't. That kind of stuff. So he was charged with soliciting sodomy and impersonating a police officer, but he was acquitted uh, at trial. Yeah, they finally track him down through the prepaid call card, right. calling cards. These cops that were on the case for like 10 years. And I forget the guy's name now. David Stewart. Okay. So he, he now lives in New York State. He, uh, but, so he was acquitted on everything based on um, the jury believing that there was just too much ambiguity. There wasn't enough information to completely link him. So the irony in all of this uh, is that the people who did get sentencing and penalized and all of that were the ones who were the patsies and did his bidding. They had a harsher sentence or consequence than the initial perpetrator of it. And that is just really unsettling, you know, Very. because it's really a complicated thing. It's, it's no different than conversations you and I have had around sex trafficking and whether a, a woman ages out and then becomes a groomer Yes, that's not okay. But again, the question of culpability and how did she get there and what was she forced to do or what was it to me, it's this very, in, in very similar category. So you look at this manager of the initial McDonald's, the case with Louise Ogborn, the, the first young woman that they talk about, and she had a pretty harsh Charged, she had some harsh charges against her and some people thought she needed more and some people thought that was unfair. But this guy seems to get to walk away without anything. Yeah, and I remember the news around that and I, I would have definitely been someone that would have looked at that and been like most of the general public and been like, oh, come on. Like, yeah. you know, I might have been one of those people because I think this is a very human response to it. It's just like a human response to any of the true crime that we talk about. Oh, I would never do that. I would never get caught up in that. I mean, I would have done this. I would have done that. I mean, we see it when we're watching horror movies or true crime or anything in the discord or with, you know, when you watch with friends, like that's a reaction like, oh, come on. I would have never gone in that house to begin with. Or, oh, I would have never mm -hmm. said that. Or I would have, you know, there's all of this like rejection of the premise kind of thing mm -hmm. going on. But it's like, and I get that in like a bad movie, but I'm just saying. Right. In real life situations where psychology is at play and there's a particular thing that plays into your psychology, your shadow, your trauma, your whatever your history is. And it and it fills that notch. It puts the key into that lock and unlocks that dynamic. A lot of us, most of us are susceptible uh -huh. to like an unconscious behavior that unlocks a trauma that we have not fully processed or realized or even been conscious to. If and, we were to ask that, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say in, in that same vein, it's like, and there's always that little, little doubt, a little voice in the back going, what if this is authority? What if this is, um, right. what, you know, even if logically, you know, it isn't, right. there's that fear that's there of like, but what if this is, and I don't listen to this. Yeah. Like what's going to happen to me. Mm -hmm. It's like self-preservation. And that's that trauma trigger too, I think is like that self-preservation of, and I think there's a lot of cultural aspects to this too, as far as today and would it, would it fly today? It's like, who knows? Probably because these things are not, these are undeniable like human dynamics. But what I did notice is that wasn't everyone they 
talked to or that was involved in these uh, crimes or a victim of them, weren't they all white? Yes, I think so. So that's an interesting piece mm -hmm. of this. I don't know what it means. It's probably victimology, you know, according to who he wanted to victimize, uh, him being white, him wanting to recreate his trauma, perhaps. I mean, we're making all kinds of just like throwing out some theories of, of the psychology behind it, but. And white people also tend to trust law enforcement. Yes. More. And that's what I was thinking is it's like, would it happen today? I don't know because yeah. I, I travel in a lot of multicultural settings, but I'm also aware that there are some cultures who are intensely terrified of the police. Mm -hmm. And so if they, they did it. really believe that it was a police officer and they were really scared that they would get into trouble, maybe more susceptible to it, maybe less yeah. susceptible to it. I have, I don't yeah. know. And I can't speak for, I can't speak for all of white culture and I can't speak for all of any culture. Right. So I don't know how that would affect it. Yeah. But I don't know. The guy at the end was great, though. The one who stepped in, he's like, hold up. He's like, first <laughs> I know, of all, I loved him. a police would not call from this. Yeah, yeah. Night. You know, he was, he And some really of us was... would react that way. Yes. And so let's talk about that, right? Like, I'm, you know, you, of course, when you're watching this, because they kind of ask the question without asking the question, is like, would you be susceptible to this kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And I, I have no idea. I, I, of course, I want to believe that I wouldn't. You know, of course you want to believe that you're the guy that goes in and goes like, what the fuck are you doing? I, I certainly now I would be that person because, you know, we've been in situations where we have to call, you know, call people on their shit. So mm -hmm. I have a feeling I wouldn't be susceptible to that particular thing. Am I susceptible to a ton of other shit? Of course, mm -hmm. <laughs> of course. But what I, what I flash on actually when I was watching this is when I was a kid, one of the things that would happen, you know, everybody had uh, house phones, you know, we don't really have those anymore, but everybody had a house phone, a landline, so to speak, and it didn't have that name because it was just your phone. But, <laughs> and so it would ring, right? <laughs> and strangers would be on the other end. And I, at a, a young age, uh, not so young, maybe like 9, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there, I answered the phone, which was not my not my norm, but I, I probably someone said, Hey, get the phone real quick. Cause that's what would happen in families. Yeah. You know, your mom can't get to the phone. Hey, grab the grab phone. The phone. <laughs> yeah. So I probably grabbed the phone <clears throat> and I remember because I was standing in my, my parents' bedroom and I grabbed the phone and I, I got on there and it was a guy yeah. and this guy started talking to me. Ooh, that's so creepy. Right. And I was talking to him. He was asking me very like simple questions and it reminded me of this documentary. Oh. He was just asking me really simple questions. Oh, Hey, are you home from school already? You know, just oh, like that's stuff so like creepy. that. Creepy. And about, I don't, you know, a kid's memory is really bad, but a few minutes, I didn't feel like we got very far, but cause nothing, nothing was said that was salacious. Nothing. It didn't get to a point where it crossed a <laughs> line, but you know, that's where it was going, of course. But like three, five minutes, let's say, my mom comes walking into the room because my mom was um, a helicopter mom for sure. <laughs> so she comes walking in the room because she's like, 
why is my 10 year old daughter still on the phone and hasn't called like, Hey, it's grandma or whatever. Cause that's what she was expecting. Right. Is for it to be someone that I knew and yeah. for me to call for her. And she walks in and she's like, who is that on the phone? And I remember just looking at her and going, I don't know. And she goes, okay. And she takes the phone and she hangs it up. Yep. And that was the end of that. But stuff like that used to happen a lot. And so I'm aware of the, the time period of course is like, whatever, 90s, you know, Mm -hmm. 80s and 90s and stuff. And so I'm just kind of aware of how people used to talk on the phone back then. And it's like so different than now. Now, a lot of our criminology is happening in social media and via text and all this other stuff, you know. So all of that to say is that I think the young people in this story, I see from my own experiences, I see how they would be, you know, they would follow the you know, they would strip all their clothes off Mm -hmm. and they would do all of these things because they're being told by their manager who is supposedly talking to the police. Like I can see how as a young person, Mm -hmm. now there were plenty of situations that I got out of that. I think maybe those early experiences had me realizing that I would, that because from then on I would get out of a lot of situations that were probably just fine, but because I would feel uncomfortable, I would just exit. Right. And my friends weren't as lucky sometimes. Right. So, so I know that like later these like early things kind of formed me so that by the time I was a full blown teenager, honestly, if I didn't feel comfortable, I was gone. Yes. And, um, but these people might not have had those kinds of repair. That's those right. Kinds of experiences. That's right. You know? Yeah. That's so I don't right. know. What do you think? Do you think you'd be susceptible to it? Hmm. Definitely. I don't think now. Um, we hope not. Right. Right. Only because I, because of the work that I do and work closely with courts, law enforcement, law enforcement, corruption, all of that, that I just don't think my go-to would be, this is the truth. No, I think everyone's lying now. (laughs) Um, I do. And, and I, I, I just don't lead with trust 20 years ago. Ooh. Like any of the roles, I mean, we're saying we wouldn't yeah. be the call. We wouldn't be the guy that's doing the whole no, thing. No, 20 years ago, would I believe that this could potentially be an authority that's asking me to do something I that first. I didn't understand initially? At what point would I realize I was being... So here's another thought. Cognitive dissonance. 90 minutes, 180 minutes. The longer and longer the call is going on. You've now invested this time in doing the quote unquote right thing. Then your brain kicks in or your gut kicks in and goes, "Uh uh-uh. You're done. Your cognitive dissonance might tell you, I've been doing this for four hours and this is real and I'm going to ignore the fact now that this might not be real because I'm invested and what if I just did something for four hours that is now illegal? I think that's a big possibility. Absolutely. And I think... The caller knows that if he gets him past a certain point, That's right. he's got him, right? That's right. And But I, I absolutely think that would I be on the phone with someone who says they were a police officer having me do simple things? Probably, especially if I had that job and at that time in my life, whatever that time is when I was younger or what have you, would I say like, 
oh, he wants me to look in your bag or he wants me to check your shoes or like simple things like that. I think I would have been susceptible to all of that. Sure. For sure. Sure. And then I know because I've been in situations not like this, but in similar situations where people are asking you simple questions and then you're very aware of when they cross the boundary of something and how I have reacted to that by literally hanging up, literally walking away, literally leaving. I do feel as if there would have been a point where I might have acknowledged that, no, I'm not going to have her take off her clothes kind of thing Mm -hmm. or anything past, you know, (laughs) I don't know. It's hard to say. It's hard to say there. I, I, I do understand what you're saying though about some people and a couple of people in the, in the videos did have this reaction where it was like, Oh, hell no. Now you've taken it too far. And they just like Get panic and, and like, leave. Shit. They're like, like, what did I just do? This is bullshit. Yeah. I just realized it's bullshit. And they walk out. I can definitely see having been in that because I was a pretty naive youngster. Yep. So. Yep. For can, sure. So it's complicated. Very. Yeah. If, if nothing, if nothing else has happened in our, in our random conversation <laughs> is that it's complicated and there's a lot of elements. And so, I don't know, do you guys think that you would be susceptible to any of this? Do you feel like no way, no how, or any part of this would resonates with you about, you know, how you might act in these situations? We'd certainly want to hear about that. That's mm-hmm. it's, I, and I think it, I think it's a no judgment zone for me. It's like for sure across the bound across the spectrum. It's all imaginal, assuming you're not haven't ever participated in something like this. We're just trying to like fantasize how we would act here. So. Here's the, the thing I will say lastly though, is at the point where, he strips her down and he asks her to bring in a man specifically. <sighs> yeah. That's where my feminist mind it would have stopped, would have stopped and said, I don't care if you are a cop, you really can go fuck yourself. I yeah. mean, not say that, <laughs> yeah, but, you just but hang I, up. I would hang up at that point and then I would call the police mm-hmm. and I would say, I'm not sure because if police would respect the fact that you are, calling to see whether this is legitimate yes, that's would. that's where i would go but that okay. way, i wouldn't have known that back then right you know what i'm saying that's the thing right is doing what we do but also just being older and learning and and all of that that's right more mature you, yeah. you kind of know those things and so yeah i hear what you're saying it's like they're i've they're answering a few simple questions yes anything beyond that yeah probably not because even a couple of the managers are like Oh, he even, oh man, he even asks them in the beginning of the calls, you know, we can either do this over the phone and you can help us out or you can uh, bring them down to the station. Yes. Yes. And the ones that he gets to do this always say, well, let's just do it over the phone Uh because he asks them and I bet you half the people he calls say, oh, well, we'll just come down to the station and then he just hangs up and (laughs) it's over. Right. Like, oh my God, it's such a, Lord. All right. So disgusting. Disgusting. I think I would, I would recommend watching it because it is a blast from the past. It's a thing that happened. I I wouldn't want anyone this to happen to anyone. So if nothing else, watch it for the cautionary tale. I also felt like it's, it's a unique story. And if you're interested in the Milgram experiment, there's a little tiny bit about that in there. Mm -hmm. And then you could go down a little bit of the rabbit hole with that. So that, that ended up being interesting to me too. And it's pretty quick. So, yep. Worth a watch. All right. 
Thanks so much for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.